is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Well, I see we are now subsidizing farmers to the tune of $12 billion. Uh, I'll get to that later in the show, because I know most of you understand where I'm coming from, but some of you are going to have a real tough time with it. I do not believe in these socialist policies. I do not believe in centralized federal government so significantly interfering with capitalism. And now we've reached the point where tariffs are hurting certain industries. And now the taxpayer is not only going to pay more for goods, more for services, but now the debt's going to go even higher. But I'll get into that a little later. We'll ease into that one. Used to be that people understood this, but not anymore, I suppose. The, uh, the media and the Democrats really are in sync in their lack of knowledge about history, in their contempt for the president, in their over-the-top rhetoric, and in their propaganda. And there was a propaganda piece in Politico, as there often is. It's a left-wing so-called news site piece written by a fellow by the name of Bill Scher. And uh, he basically says, and the title of his piece is, Republicans have an Alger Hiss problem named Marlia. Marlia. The arrest of an alleged Russian spy has conservatives running for cover. Here's what they should do instead. I'm not running for cover. Are you running for cover? No, I'm not running for cover. And we're going to bring back my buddy, Professor Paul Kengor of Grove City, expert on the Cold War and activities before and thereafter to talk about this. So we'll give a little history lesson to this fool of Politico and to all of us. But just so we understand, Alger Hiss was not a Russian. He was an American. He was working for the administration of Franklin Roosevelt. And he was a spy. He was assisting the Kremlin. That is, working for the Soviet Union. This woman is a Russia, Russian working for the Russians. Now, Hiss had a very high-level position in the State Department and as an advisor to FDR and was involved in the Yalta negotiations in which, as I've explained before, basically half of Europe was ultimately surrendered to the uh, Soviets and Joseph Stalin, who killed tens of millions, but whom FDR affectionately called Uncle Joe. Alger Hiss played a direct role in this. So Politico's so-called reporter, contributor, whatever he is, compares Alger Hiss to this Maria Butina. Why? Because he knows most of his readers are stupid and they have no idea who Alger Hiss is, was, or otherwise. And it wasn't just Alger Hiss. There were many more, and we'll get into that too. A whole spy ring that was exposed, and partly exposed with the help of Richard Nixon, which is one of the reasons why the left has always hated Nixon. 
and the Un-American Affairs Committee. So this writer begins, alleged Russian spy Maria Butina was arrested just a few days ago, short of the 70th anniversary of the last major accusation of Russian infiltration in America's political system. When on August 3, 1948, Time editor and ex-communist Whitaker Chambers publicly accused former high-ranking State Department official Alger Hiss of being a Soviet agent. Rattled Democrats, including President Harry Truman, handled the fallout poorly, hesitating to distance themselves from Hiss and unwittingly feeding a conservative narrative that they were soft on communism. See, it's always an attack on conservatives and patriots and so forth. Republicans are now having their own Alger Hiss moment. This is where this guy gets bizarre. Butina's alleged efforts to ingratiate herself with conservative movement organizations and the Republican Party. Now we know she met with certain Obama officials. I wonder if they'll update this piece. Hello. I said now we know she met with certain Obama officials. He goes on. Shows that Russia's interest in Donald Trump is not an operation focused on one man. As explained in the Justice Department affidavit in October 2016, Butina reported to her Russian mentor that Republicans are for us and Democrats against. This is not just about one seductive spy or even one president. It's about how intertwined Russia and the Republican Party are becoming and whether the Republican Party is willing and able to disentangle itself. Is the Republican Party entangled with Russia? In what way exactly? By defending Trump against these outrageous allegations, not a single scintilla of which is supportable? You mean the Republicans who have voted to increase defense spending? You mean the Republican administration that's taken certain severe steps against Russia where the Obama administration wouldn't? Hiss was convicted of perjury in 1950 for falsely denying in his 1948 congressional testimony that he gave Whitaker Chambers confidential State Department documents to be delivered to the Soviets. Interesting back then, isn't it, that people were actually prosecuted? He served 44 months in prison, then spent the next 42 years maintaining his innocence, ever after, even after intercepts declassified just before his death strongly indicated Hiss was a Soviet agent for years. And by the way, the Democrats supported Hiss, many of them to the end, claiming, no, 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 of course he's not a, uh, of course he wasn't a Russian spy. Shortly before his fall, Alger Hiss had risen high enough in the State Department to serve as acting general secretary of the United Nations during the 1945 San Francisco conference that finalized the international organization's charter. When rumors of his Soviet ties prompted his resignation at the end of 1946, his reputation remained strong enough for a Republican, John Foster Dulles, to engineer a smooth transition into the presidency of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His guilt, how come he's not talking about the Democrats? His guilt while hotly debated for decades, left a lingering stain on the Democratic Party and on liberalism. No, it didn't. Did it leave a lingering stain on them? They do all kinds of crackpot stuff. Does it leave a lingering stain on them? He's just trying to set up Trump and the Republicans, making it difficult for the party to win the public trust on matters both foreign and domestic. If Republicans handle their Algerist moment as awkwardly as Democrats did, they face a similar fate. What Algerist moment? 
Why was Hitch such a touchstone for the Cold War era? Because for much of the left, he was an honorable man who served 14 years in three government departments during the Roosevelt and Truman administrations, only to be smeared in a wave of anti-communist hysteria. He wasn't smeared. Somebody had a scent on the guy. For the right, he was proof that communists were crawling throughout our government and the liberal Democrats should be suspected of harboring secret anti-American agendas. As Whitaker Chambers wrote in Witness, by the way, a great book, if you haven't read it, when he fingered, hissed, and aimed at communism, he also struck out the forces of the great socialist revolution, which in the name of liberalism has been inching its ice cap over the nation for two decades. That's what Chambers said, and he was correct. Now, once served time, even though he was never convicted of espionage, the right had the upper hand in the argument. Now, see, see how liberal writes and thinks? The right has the upper hand, the left has the lower hand. No, the problem is progressivism, statism. The problem was FDR. It's not the right having the upper hand or the lower hand, but this guy has to create the scenario to act like Donald Trump is facing an Aldra Hiss moment, and so are we. No, we're not. The case marked the beginning of the post-World War II ideological fault lines that would shape American politics during the Cold War. The dueling testimonies of Chambers and Hiss to the House on American Activities Committee riveted the nation. The relentless pursuit of Hiss made a young congressman from California, Richard Nixon, a rock star in his party before there were rock stars. Days after Hiss's conviction in 1950, Senator Joe McCarthy infamously took the anti-communist crusade to the next level, waving a long list of names he dubiously claimed were Communist Party members working in the State Department. Isn't this similar to the Democrats, waving their lists around? Accusing people of colluding with the Russians? They must have something on Trump. Isn't that the next line, the new line? The Truman administration was blindsided, though it shouldn't have been. The FBI had been investigating Hiss in 45 and 46. And Secretary of State Jimmy Burns and Undersecretary Dean Acheson were fully aware, though Truman may not have been. That scrutiny led to Hiss's quiet resignation, and yet Truman condemned the 1948 hearings as a red herring that was serving no useful purpose and slandering a lot of people that don't deserve it. After the conviction, Acheson, now Secretary of State, remained loyal to his longtime friend, Alger Hiss, Whatever the outcome of any appeal, I do not intend to turn my back on Alger Hiss, said Atchison, citing the gospel of Matthew for good measure. All Truman would offer was less dramatic, no comment. Now their posture, he writes, was politically devastating, especially since Alger Hiss's case overlapped with the communist takeover of China. Truman and Atchison lost China, conservative Republicans thundered. Well, they did, as a matter of fact. One Republican senator even speculated that Hiss had shaped the State Department's China policy. The 1952 Democratic presidential nominee, Adlai Stevenson, suffered as well. In 1949, he'd given a deposition for the perjury trial in which he said Hiss had a good reputation and that he hadn't heard any speculation of communist sympathies. The Republican vice presidential nominee, the newly famous Nixon, hammered Stevenson for bad judgment. The man at the top of the ticket, General Dwight Eisenhower, campaigned with McCarthy and charged that communism had poisoned two whole decades of our national life. Stevenson won just nine states. That's not why Eisenhower won. It may have been a reason, but it wasn't even the primary reason. Dwight Eisenhower in 1952 was hugely popular, and the Democrats tried to convince him to run as a Democrat. And he said no. 
No, he was the conquering general. He was a hero. The cruel irony was that Truman and Acheson were no softies when it came to communism. They were the architects of the anti-communist quasi-militaristic containment strategy after World War II. Boy, this guy's a lib. A policy both credited for ultimately winning the Cold War. Oh, right. And maligned for goading the U.S. into these messy Korean and Vietnam wars. Hardly evidence of communist control of the State Department. Is there any doubt that there were communists at the State Department or in the uh, FDR Truman administrations? There were. I mean... These same leftists who insist that Trump is all tied up with the Russians ignore the facts, as we will discuss in 10 or 15 minutes. The Truman administration received little contemporaneous credit for containment at the time, thanks to the triumph of Mao and China and the unpopularity of the the, uh, inconclusive uh, Korean War. Not much Truman and Atchison could have done about those events. Yeah, right. But they could have taken the Hiss scandal far more seriously. Now, why is he getting into all this? Well, he tells you why. Fast forward to today. We have evidence of a Russian spy infiltrating the conservative movement of the Republican Party in order to influence U.S. politics and foreign policy. We have copious evidence of Russian meddling. Here you go. In the 2016 election to help elect a Republican president who has proceeded to frequently parrot the Putin line. Interesting, though, he doesn't mention that Obama told everybody to stand down. What's that all about? Surely our conservative elder statesman, who for years crowed about his, wouldn't repeat the same mistakes as Truman's Democrats, right? Anyone should have learned political lessons from the Hiss affair. It should have been the fervently anti-Russian yet pro-Trump conservative commentator, and then he does a hit on Hugh Human. Goes on, the typical Republican reaction on Capitol Hill was to welcome Trump's grudging, not-so-credible walkback from a few of his Helsinki comments. On the Butina case, we mostly hear silence from conservatives, including from Butina's main mark, the National Rifle Association. Though Fox News host Tucker Carlson spent three minutes with the Washington Examiner's Byron York downplaying the charges. And some far right wing voices are even thanking Russians for their participation in American politics. They saved us from Hillary after all. It goes on. Even among Putin critics, flirtations with Russia don't enrage uh, conservatives today the way they did 70 years ago because we're not presently in a titanic struggle between communism and capitalism that seems to threaten the american way of life of course at the time when hiss and a handful of others lower in roosevelt administration were part of the communist underground so-called in the 1930s the cold war had not yet begun and during world war ii america and soviet union were allies of convenience and it goes on you get the point here the end, he says, Soviet communism is dead, but Putinism lives and is all too often echoed by Trump and his loyalists. Republicans have a choice to make. Repeat the mistakes made by Alger Hiss's defenders out of short-term political expediency or live up to the honorable example set by Whitaker Chambers, even if it means taking the chance of joining the losing world. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, this what's-her-name has infiltrated the conservative movement and the Republican Party, and I might add, met with Obama officials, and we don't know the full extent of that because Mr. Mueller hasn't helped us with that, nor have others, is like Alger Hiss? Really? Well, we need to pursue that a little bit more deeply than Politico. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin.
amazing what the left has done in this country, even in terms of the debate. So now you see they are the warriors against communism. Let me ask you a question. What philosophy is closer to communism, capitalism or socialism? Oh, excuse me, democratic socialism. I keep saying this, so even the backbenchers will repeat it, which is this. Democratic socialism, so-called, taken to its extreme, is what? Taken to its extreme, it's Marxism. Capitalism taken to its extreme is capitalism. Right? Progressivism, the government form, taken to its extreme is Marxism. Constitutional republicanism taken to its extreme is constitutional republicanism. And yet we spend in this country, day in and day out, listening to the promotion of quote-unquote democratic socialism, progressivism, statism, so-called liberalism, whatever nomenclature they, they give to their ideology. We almost spend no time talking about capitalism and the market system, unless you listen to this show. All right, I'll be right back. Mark Levin, the champion of liberty and true conservatism. Call Mark now, 877-381-3811. Professor Paul Kengor, how are you, sir? Grove City University, welcome back. Hey, Mark. Good to be back. Thanks. All right, listen. You, you, uh, we have this article today, Politico, po- pointing out that this Russian woman is akin to Alger Hiss. Now, this can't be true, can it? No. No, I'll tell you, that, that would really floored me. I, I mean, it just shows, like you and I were talking about the other day, how you know, people on the left have just gone to hysterical proportions on this. And, I mean, for one thing, I, I don't even know where to start on this, but... First of all, Alger Hiss was an American working for the government, you know, working for the State Department, among other things, and this woman's not an American, right? I mean, she's, she's, she's a Russian. But, but to, I mean, to give you just one idea, kind of for starters, what, what Hiss was doing and how this is in, in no way comparable. I mean, Hiss in the 1930s, and, and this is what the, the Hiss-Whitaker Chambers case became all about that was a case that went from about 1948 to 1950 but hiss was a government official he illegally took classified files from his state department office what he would do mark is he he would wait till the end of the day when when everybody had left and there was maybe a secretary there who trusted him and and he would put the documents in his briefcase and then he took these documents home and he gave them to his wife Priscilla, and then Priscilla would type up duplicates of these documents, these classified documents, and then they would be delivered to the Soviets, and then Hiss would bring them back the next morning. And and the, the courier, if you will, who did this was Whitaker Chambers, and and Chambers, who and this is right out of the biography of Whitaker Chambers by Sam Tannenhaus, the. The old New York Times mm-hmm. the guy who's a liberal and a very good historian wrote a really good biography of Chambers. But Chambers said under oath that he was a courier for these documents from Hiss, 
quote, at least 52 times, unquote, and Chambers would take these to a Soviet agent named Boris Baikov, who would then deliver them to the Kremlin. So um, this Maria Butina, who, you know, I've read what they've said about her, and I'm trying to figure out what, <laughs> what, what exactly she did that was so nefarious, but I can tell you this. She didn't do nearly anything as bad as what Alger Hiss did to his government in the 1930s and 1940s. It is amazing, uh, because even in this political article, you don't know what she did. He doesn't tell us what she did, and he really doesn't tell us what Hiss does in any significant way, does he? No, he really doesn't. I mean, I guess to his credit, he, he he gets a lot of the Hiss sort of basic facts right but but it's kind of what he does with them and where he goes from there that that's the problem but it's off the top of my head but i think he pointed out that that hiss went to jail for about four years right i think he was convicted in 1950 he was convicted for perjury these are the kind of details that are in there and uh, where where did he perjure himself he he perjured himself before a jury a grand jury and that's, that's, in fact, what he went to prison for. And probably the only funny thing that, Ch- that um, Hiss ever said or did was he said that four years in a federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, was an excellent corrective to four years at Harvard. So- but, but, but here's the thing. Hiss was defended almost right to the end by many Democrats and leftists and newspapers in this country. Oh, yeah. No, it's absolutely right. There is a... They thought he was railroaded. Yeah, they did. There is an Alger Hiss chair, or at least there used to be at Bard College. I mean, <laughs> Alger Hiss has been defended by the left from, from the very beginning, 1940, for decades. And I think it was the, the late Arthur Schlesinger, who was a, a man on the left, but you know, the so-called uh, but, 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 you know, pretty honest, pretty honest liberal, and he even said something to the effect of, well, we and all of Alger, Alger's friends knew that he was guilty, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, but we, we remained his friends anyway. But, but even then, I, there, there's a lot of people on the left that absolutely refuse to, to admit that he was even guilty. And the, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, and others, they, they tried to downplay what Hiss did at Yalta, uh, suggesting that he was a quote mere note taker, mm-hmm. um, a glorified office boy was one of the phrases. That they who was? Used. Who was? Let me give you a few names: Harry Dexter White, yeah, Lachlan Carey, De- Frank Coe. Who are all these people? Yeah, the, these were among the many, the many Soviet agents or agents of influence, closet CPUSA members. Although Harry Dexter White actually wasn't a Communist Party USA member. And in fact, a, a, a real a real difficult problem with with a lot of this, Mark, is trying to separate a Soviet spy from a CPUSA member to an agent of influence. And sometimes, the worst thing that you could get would be somebody who would stand before the House Committee on Un-American Activities and truthfully say, uh, "No, I'm not a member of a Communist Party, and I never have been," because a lot of those guys didn't join the party because they didn't want to take direct orders from Moscow. And they could help Moscow more as a non-party member. So and who was Harry Dexter White? So Harry Dexter White was, was in the Treasury Department. He, he uh, just a major influence on behalf of the Russians and the Kremlin 
many different ways, was called to testify for it, I think, in 1946, and pretty much lied through his teeth in that testimony, and then died of, died of a heart attack very, very shortly after that. But he, he was one among many. Well, let me, let's go through some quickly before we run out of time. Yeah. Lachlan Curry, who was that? Lachlan Curry, another one. Uh, the pro- probably the the very worst that I think nobody would dispute today of, of high level FDR officials who who caused serious problems. Lachlan Curry, Harry Dexter White would be at the top of the list. They were higher ranking than Alger Hiss. Then there was people like Harold Glasser, um, Lee Pressman, uh, Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins is controversial. The Herb Romerstein of the Venona Papers, who died a few years ago, I think you and I both knew him, mm. and he's convinced that Harry Hopkins, who was the, the, the single closest aide to both FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt, I mean, the guy actually lived in the White House, mm. but uh, Romerstein is convinced that Harry Hopkins was Agent 19 in the Venona Papers, and some people dispute that. They, they say, well... He wasn't a spy, but he was definitely a dupe and a useful. But idiot. but I want to I want to I want ex- the audience to understand that when they're talking about Trump collusion with Russia, and the best they can do uh, is a phony FISA warrant against Carter Page, and maybe there was a meeting with a woman who was pushing to change the McGinsky Act, or uh, this woman Futima, whatever the hell she did. It doesn't come anywhere close to what was going on in Franklin Roosevelt's administration, which was over the top with these people. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. And, and to give you an example of this, what exactly Alger Hiss did at Yalta. I mean, Alger Hiss, the spy that we're talking about, was actually at Yalta. And you know, that, you know, that was the February 1945 final conference that, that FDR participated in where they sold out not only Eastern Europe, Poland, but, you know, but other, other parts of the globe. And, and we, we now have this documentation. This is directly from Edward Statinius, who was FDR's Secretary of State at the time, actually Secretary of State at the, at the time of Yalta. And you know, this is Statinius's papers are now at the University of Virginia. Liberal historians, if they really wanted to, could go down there and look through these. Stan Evans and Herb Romerstein and others actually did look through it, but but they had all through Statinius's papers when when he's talking about Yalta, uh, quote Alger Hiss can fill in the background unquote. This is on German occupation, the assigning a German occupation zone to France. Another, see Alger Hiss about this. A third, see Alger and we'll discuss this again. Fourth, Hiss would remember. Consult him. Five. See Alger Hiss again. Six, see Alger Hiss about this. Seven, quote, Alger Hiss can fill in important background on that, unquote. So that all kind of goes beyond the whole issue of glorified office boy or note taker mm-hmm. at Yalta. And, and it also certainly shows that I don't know what Maria Butina did, or actually I know what they're saying that she did. It nowhere even begins to compare to what people like Alger Hiss was doing. And uh, very quickly, to to bring us closer to this decade, although not close enough, Ted Kennedy, you've written about this extensively, 
in all the media coverage, I mean, he's a fairly contemporary figure, even though he passed some years ago. Uh, he, he's well known to many people listening to this program, young people listening to this program. He was, he was involved in left-wing causes up the wazoo, blocking conservative causes um, uh, from a prominent family. The media loved him. They never bring him up with respect to the old Soviet Union and how he worked closely with the Kremlin to try and defeat Ronald Reagan. Just a few minutes on that, if you can, Paul. Yeah, sure. And let me add one thing very quickly from Harvard's Cold War History Project. This is um, they concluded that the Venona papers revealed that more than 350 Americans, including numerous high level U.S. government officials and scientists working on the Manhattan Project, were spying for Soviet intelligence agencies in the late 1930s and 1940s. Now, that's under FDR. More than 350 Americans spying All right. for Soviet agencies in the 30s and 40s. But, but yeah, Ted Kennedy, he, we have a May 14, 1983 document. It's, it's written by Viktor Chebrikov, the head of the KGB, to Yuri Andropov, the head of the Soviet Union. And the very top of it, it says, regarding Senator Kennedy's request, to the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Yuri Andropov. And they go through there and they talk about a confidential contact made by a liaison, John Tunney, who had been a Democratic senator from California in the 1970s. He was an old law school roommate of Ted Kennedy. He was the conduit for this, and it was an offer by Kennedy to meet with Andropov. It even says in the document, He's willing to fly to Moscow to meet with him directly. He's willing to help Soviet political and military officials come to the United States. Kennedy's willing to help them, introduce them to American media figures. They even named Walter Cronkite and Barbara Walters in the memo. And all of this is said within the context of the dangerous Ronald Reagan, who, as it notes throughout the document, is up for re-election next year. And he's riding high. Reaganomics is working. The economy's soaring. But Kennedy's very troubled by Reagan as a threat to peace. Uh, Kennedy says, he, to the contrary, that Kennedy's very impressed, or the exact words used, with Yuri Andropov. And so this whole Kennedy overture and outreach is set within the context of Reagan's 1984 re-election. And you hear none of this in the context of what they're accusing Trump of. Russia, 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 Russia. I can't find all the Russia, 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 Russia involving Trump. Can you? No, and, and I mean, if you want a smoking gun document, a piece of hard evidence, I mean, what could be, <laughs> what could be stronger than a literal KGB document written by the literal head of the KGB? This isn't somebody who's a staffer for the KGB. So the head of the KGB, Viktor Chebrikov, writing to the head of the Soviet Union, Yuri Andropov. And, and that document was found by a London Times BBC reporter named Tim Sebastian. It was first reported in the London Times, February 1992. And just a little bit of it was reported. He didn't actually publish the document. I published the document in full in a book in 2006, and then again in another book, called dupes in 2010 where i published both the english and the russian tra the russian and would, the would that would that make ted kennedy a traitor well i don't know if it makes him a traitor but it certainly makes him um scheming and duplicitous and doing something pretty damn bad that somebody on the left you think would care about but john brennan john brennan the the cia director before the last two cia directors who worked for obama 
think he'd call Kennedy a traitor? No, because John Brennan, as you point out and others, voted for Gus Hall, the head of the Communist Party, United States of America, and he knew all about Gus Hall, didn't he? Well, and Gus Hall, who was, yeah, head of Communist Party USA, his guys in Moscow at that time that John Brennan voted for him would have been Yuri Andropov at the KGB and Leonid Brezhnev as, as, as head of the Soviet Union. And, and you know, this Kennedy stuff, um, I note the dates on when I published it, because when I first published those documents in a 2006 book, Kennedy lived for, I'd have to look it up, I think two or three years after that, and, and nobody, and, and prior to that, 14 years earlier, 1992, was the piece in the London Times. The London Times. I mean, it's a very respectable newspaper. I've got one minute. A- any major news outlet interview you about this? None. none. Any today, other than this show? No, none whatsoever. I've a- never. None. They haven't asked you about Ted Kennedy. They haven't asked you about Alger Hiss. They haven't asked you about the Roosevelt administration, have they? No, because I think they're afraid of what I would say. Mm-hmm. So, so when that is the facts. That you, yeah, that's right. When they know that you have information like this, they ignore you. If I, mm-hmm. if I had my facts wrong, they'd probably attack me and, and nuke it. But, but Well, but, Professor, I'm on a hard break. As always, we love having you. And I very much appreciate your contribution. Keep it up. He's a good friend, Paul Kengor, Grove City. God bless you, my friend. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Al Sharpton discussing this, or Mika Brzezinski, or Joe Scarborough, or Don Lemon, or Katie Turr, or Jake Tapper. Could you imagine any of them discussing this? No. They're too stupid. That's number one. But number two, they don't give a damn. Because they're all ideological, political hacks. I'm sorry. But don't blame me. Bet you'll never guess my favorite place to sit. Oh, yes. I know, on my bottom, but that's not my point. Sit on what? My sofa? I have a great sofa. My leather chair? Great leather chair. No, but that's not my favorite place. I'm sitting in it right now at my desk in the bunker. It's my amazing new X chair. The X chair is not only the most modern and stylish piece of furniture, but it is luxuriously comfortable. It molds itself to my body, giving me ideal posture, which in turn gives me more energy, better concentration, more productivity than I ever thought possible. Don't waste another day in that generic office chair that you bought. You know, get an X chair and you will feel the difference. I promise you, you will. And if you own a company, get them for the entire office and see how much your employees appreciate them and how productive they'll become as a result. Now, here's a special deal just for you, my listeners. And I mean that because X-Chair only advertises on this program. They're a sponsor here. Go to xchairlevin.com, xchairlevin.com. Go right now. You'll get $100 off. That's xchairlevin.com or call their toll-free number, which is set up specifically for you. 1-844-4-CHAIR. One eight four four. I blew it already. Ready? One eight four 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 X chair. One eight four 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 
X-Chair. Now, X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. So you can't go wrong. Go to xchairlevin.com now. And by the way, if you use code Levin Footrest, you'll also get a free footrest. And I put my feet on it right now. That's xchairlevin.com. Use code Levin Footrest. Get the free footrest. xchairlevin.com. You won't go wrong with this chair. You can see one of them on my uh, Facebook site, too, if you like. All right, we'll be right back. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, Let me jump to an interesting caller who represents himself as an individual who worked in Congress during the Hiss case. Max, Washington, D.C., the great WMAL. How are you, sir? Pretty good, Mark. What years were those where you worked in Congress? Uh, I actually started in 69 while I was in graduate school and worked for a congressman, and then later on I did a study for the Senate Internal Security Committee, and I was also a undercover operative who testified before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. But the but his per se, most of that occurred in the forties and fifties. Correctly, yes. uh, correct yes. rather. Yeah. Yes, I was lucky enough to meet with Chambers in nineteen sixty one. Shortly before he died, he gave a talk at a boys' club I was in in Baltimore, and the story he told then was exactly what he wrote in Witness and what he testified before Congress. But the follow up would be is that I also met the man Isaac Don Levine, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who took his to see A.A. A. Burrell in the White House early in the 40s. And Burrell was the man who was going to take the information up to FDR to tell him that there's something suspicious about his and that Chambers was the man who could identify him. The question is, what happened to that information? Did it get called by Lachlan Curry? As, uh, well, well the here, here's the thing. How, how was it that FDR didn't even have a hint about what Hiss was doing? Because he was sandwiched in by a, a group of leftists, including some identified Soviet agents, who kept the information from him. And then also, I don't think he wanted to hear much about it. He was in fighting World War II, and he thought about Stalin is our devil, and we have to work with him, so I don't want to ruffle his feathers and upset the, the alliance. But there were people in the administration who were, who were concerned about Hiss and the Soviet Union, and he wasn't listening to them. That's right, and that's what Isaac Don Levine and some of the others were saying, that the information flow to FDR was very guarded by some of the people around him, which was Dexter White and uh, Lachlan Curry and a couple others. There's some other spies involved in this that uh, I don't think have ever been uh, unmasked, because if you go back into 1940, you'll find Alger Hiss and his wife and his brother and Lee Preston and the others of the Silver Master Ware Group, all in one big communist liberal front here in Washington. And that list is going to be on the Internet, hopefully within the next couple of weeks or so. And his, you, you tell my call screener, was not of the KGB. He was of the GRU, the military side of the Soviet Union. That's right. And that's what's happened in the last couple of years, that the people have been arrested here 
I was doing a couple of cases the other day where GRU, not KGB. What do you make? What do you make of the media in this country that provide no context? That say nobody has sold out America to the Russians like Trump has. And honestly, Max, and I'm, I'm being quite honest about this. If I thought Trump was selling out to the Russians, I'd turn on him in two seconds. I just don't see it. Okay, I'll make you happy. I used to write for Human Events as an investigative reporter. And I covered the Hill, I covered internal security, and I covered Vietnam. So I learned very from very good writers on how to look for information. And Alan Riskin used to say... Alan Riskin was an old friend of mine. Yes, he said, you write it concise, write it clear, and always document everything you write. And those are the three lines. That was my total journalism school education. And I tried to adhere to it because of Alan and all the other great people who were around. All right, but back to my question about Trump. I don't see any of this in Trump, do you? No. no. Donald Trump is his own man. Sometimes he's a bit rough around the edges. And he's not a politician, so he's not saying the things that politicians would like to do as a weasel. Is there any evidence you're observing publicly like the rest of us? They don't like his press conference. Is there any evidence through any actions or his appointments of Bolton and Pompeo and Mattis that he has any inclination to sell out to the Russians? No, especially with Bolton, because John Bolton, to impress me, is one of the most intelligent, knowledgeable men we've ever had in our diplomatic service. And I don't think he's going to let the president get caught up in something that's really disastrous. But don't forget, people are setting up the president. This is what I'm seeing, because the whole Steele dossier was based on three Russian sources, which is, there's the Russian collusions between Steele, the DNC, and Fusion, and those three sources. It didn't start out with any Americans down here. So Mm -hmm. people would like to gloss over that particular connection and say, Oh, it's Trump, somebody, uh, Mattis had a meeting, or uh, Now, Matt, Max, you must be amazed at uh, how the the Democrats, who for the most part were defending Hiss and this whole ring of spies and so forth, uh, for so many decades, and now all of a sudden they're concerned about Russia. Do you actually believe that? Not at all. I want to refer you to a document that's on the Internet that has not been given a lot of publicity. That Paul Kanger did his, 19, his, his Russian archives piece. But in 1970, J. Edgar Hoover wrote a report on Soviet targeting of members of the U.S. Congress and their staffs. It's on a site called KeyWiki, K-E-Y-W-I-K-I dot org, under Edward Kennedy's section. And the whole text of that document, listing all the members of Congress who were targeted by the KGB, are there. And Ted Kennedy's name is right up there. All right, Max. Well, I want to thank you. I bet you'd be fascinating to have dinner with. You take care of yourself, and thank you. How about that? Oh, I know, I could take the show in another direction. I will at some point. But context and history is a very, very important thing. And if I don't discuss it with people who are knowledgeable about it, it won't be discussed. When you think about all the media outlets there, on cable, on network, on satellite, on the Internet, and so forth, how little of this is actually discussed. It's incredible to me. And so you have young people listening to Trump and Russia and Russia, and he's tied up with Russia and the spies in Russia, Russia. Wait a minute. Not only is that false, but the very party that's attacking this president has its fingerprints and DNA historically all over Russia. As they do segregation, as they do slavery. It's important to understand our history. I don't care how many monuments they tear down. 
How many books they burn? Ed, Memphis, Tennessee, Sirius Satellite, go. Yes, Ed, go. Yes, I think the terminology you used is incorrect. Uh, This young lady is a spy, which is an honorable thing to spy for your own country. Alger Hiss is a traitor. All right, sir. Thank you for your call. He was also a spy. Okay, correct my... You call over semantics, really? You you hang on for... I don't know how... Well, anyway, Tom, Washington, D.C., the great WMAL. Go. Oh, thank you. I was going to bring up the point, but your uh, guest beat me to it, about how, wait a minute, the left was telling us all along these people were innocent. Now I'm saying, oh, it's worse than his? Wait a minute. His was innocent. But I will take it the next step. This is way back when I was a kid. You and I are about two part of age. I was in first grade, and I had a teacher who just got way off the lessons and was telling us all about the Rosenbergs and how they were innocent and railroaded by McCarthyism and all the right. death. My parents, the point I want to make is I got home. We have a very bad connection, so get right to your point, please. Okay. The point was that my parents... Asked. They monitored our education. They just happened to ask that day. When I told them what I was taught in school, they went through the roof. I had my father the tank all through my life. He taught me critical thinking skills and pointing all out right. this stuff. This, and he was warning me about the media. Thank you for your call. The, the connection is just, it's giving me, with my headphones, it's hurting my ears, actually. Uh, didn't they create an ethyl... Rosenberg Day of Justice in New York City, Mr. Producer. Will you Google that for me, please? It just shows you how serious the left is. Got the cameo as the mayor and so forth. Got leftists, communists, democratic socialists, Marxists, whatever they want to label themselves. It's all of the same uh, community mindset. I'm pretty sure I remember this. I don't believe I spoke about it, but the Ethel Rosenberg Day of Justice in New York City, for some reason that sticks in my mind. In the borough of Manhattan, tell me, when was that? Uh, that's what I thought. September 28, 2015, the borough of Manhattan. Ethel Rosenberg, Day of Justice in New York City. She was convicted along with her husband of providing the plans to the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. And she celebrated in Manhattan because of the injustice that was done in her execution. Amazing. I'm sure John Brennan agrees, you know, because only Donald Trump, you see, is guilty of treason. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Max, I know your last name now. I'm told you're absolutely legit. And that you've done fabulous work uh, in helping to uncover uh, significant information. And so I want to thank you for that. You sounded legit to me and to my call screener. So you got got through, and that's a good thing. So I want to thank you for that. A few more calls on this, then we'll roll along. Uh, Please, I don't want another caller telling me that Trump's playing four-dimensional chess. Please. That's a meaningless phrase. Just defend the president. You don't have to get goofy. Four, what the hell is four-dimensional chess? Do you know what it is, Rich? I don't even know what three-dimensional chess is. Playing four-dimensional chess? I don't think he's playing four-dimensional chess. I think he calls them as he sees them. And he uses his business experience and his, his life experiences and tries to apply them. 
Doesn't mean he's perfect. He's not. But it means he's different. And he may get us to places where we need to be that others couldn't. Give me this four-dimensional chess crap. Nobody even knows what that means. Let's Google it. Let's continue, shall we? Bob, Long Beach, California, 870 The Answer. Go. Uh, you're a great American, Mark. Um, I I want to r- agree with what the professor said and the last two callers. I um, Let's see. We, there was an American Communist Party. We, you know, in the 1930s and the 1940s, um, and Alger Hiss and Harry Dexter White belonged to it, and they were in the State Department. And if you were a leader of the American Communist Party, you had to be a spy. And Alger Hiss and Harry Dexter White wrote the United Nations Charter. Um, I, uh, Whitaker Chambers was the leader of the American uh, Communist Party, and, and he left it, put his life in danger, and uh, Elizabeth Bentley took over. Uh, all, right, all right, all right, all right, listen to me a second. Everybody knows where to find this stuff. I have a question for you. May I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Why is it? that when we dig into Alger Hiss and these connections and Ted Kennedy and so forth, the media has absolutely no interest whatsoever. Yet, they concoct, manufacture, all this stuff about Russia and Trump. It's day in, day out, day in and day out. What I'm trying to do, doesn't that, it's not about whataboutism, although that's important. It's not about hypocrisy, although that's very important. It's about showing that they're frauds care about the Russians. They've never cared about the Russians. They don't even care about properly funding our military in order to deal with the Russians and the Chinese and the rest of these threats that we face in this country. They opposed SDI. You know who else opposed SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative? The Soviets. And so I look at this. I look at these clowns in the media, mostly low IQ buffoons, who have no historical context whatsoever and don't want one. Their attacks on Trump, they're all worked up about this Helsinki press conference, and they, they don't bring up anything, anything about things you can actually touch in history that the Democrat Party did, and some Republicans too, but the Democrat Party primarily, in selling out to the Soviets and the Russians. How do you explain that, sir? Well, I believe the Republicans never fight back. They run and hide. Uh, you talk about status, and you associate with the Democrat Party. And um, I think this. I'm a history major. I got my degree in American history. The, the um, progressives came. From right, the do mo- you think the Republicans are soft progressives like I think? Oh yes, only the Freedom Caucus is the only one that has any. Why? Guts. Why do we need a Freedom Caucus within the Republican Party? Shouldn't the whole Republican Party be the Freedom Caucus? Exactly. All uh, right, sir. Thank you for agreeing with me. Getting some very good callers, I might say. Liberals, you're free to call. We always leave a line open. We have a special line for you: eight seven seven three eight one thirty eight eleven. That's our liberal line. Timothy, Portland, Oregon, the great KUFO. Go. Hello, this is Mark. This is Timothy Paul. I'm so glad. All right, sir. Go right ahead, please, before we run out of time. Yeah, so, uh, well, I have a little bit different approach. The Communism Party, very, very shrewd. I I leave the what you guys talking about, coming from Romanian, a Communist Party, been in jail four times. Ceausescu. 
Exactly. I'm so glad to be to the United States. Thanks God and thanks to American people who allowed me to become a citizen about 20 some five years ago. Mm-hmm. It, the, always there was an article in Romanian. All right, all right. My question, Timothy, to bring it to present day, you uh, you think Trump is selling out to the Russians? No. Or, or do you think the Democrats have had a long history of selling out to the Russians? That's what it is. The Democrats, but they like to point fingers to others. That's always the strategy of what they do. Mm-hmm. They they call they they shouting catch the thief. The thief shouting catch the thief. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's exactly what they're doing. So the ideas of a communism you you can see reflecting and and in, uh, in ideas right now from from a lot of uh, uh, Democrats running for office. Exactly the common see, see, my attitude right now is, uh, Timothy, if the Democrats want to talk about Russia, then let's talk about Russia. And let's talk about communism. And let's talk about the Soviet Union. And let's talk about Hiss and Yalta. Let's talk about FDR's administration. Let's talk about Ted Kennedy. Let's talk. Let's do it. But they won't. And they don't. Thank you for your call, sir. And I'm glad you're here as well. Thank you. Want to talk about race? Let's talk about race. Let's talk about the Democrat Party and slavery and segregation and Jim Crow laws, poll taxes, literacy. Th- let's do it. But they don't want to do it because their fingerprints are all over it. I'm quite serious about this. I think if more and more people understood the nature of the early Democrat Party, the heritage of the Democrat Party, Fewer and fewer of them would be Democrats. But the Democrat Party is able to camouflage all this because they have the media in their back pocket and they basically promote one form or another of, uh, of the welfare state or socialism, if you will. The term doesn't matter as much. The point is big government handouts. It's just another way of controlling the individual. It's just another way of, of propagandizing. That's what they do. That's what they're about, because they are, in the end, statists. Everything's about government. Listen to this 28-year-old moron. Listen to Bernie Sanders. Government should do this. Government should do this. Government should do this. Is that in the Declaration? Is that in the Constitution? Of course not. I'll be right back. That Mark Levin is the fastest growing radio show in America. The Mark Levin Show is on at 877-381-3811. Nearly every day there's another security breach. I hope you're taking this stuff seriously. Because if you shop in stores or online with credit cards, you have electronic health care records or use email or online banking, you're vulnerable. But I actually don't worry about it at all. I have the best-in-class identity protection for my family and me from my ID care. We stepped it up. And you can, too, at myidcare.com slash mark. Promo code mark. You also get 15% off when you enter promo code mark, by the way. That's myidcare.com slash mark, promo code mark. I'm very proud to partner with My ID Care. They've been taking care of Fortune 500 companies for years. My ID Care works with you personally and covers you for the nine types of identity theft. For less than 10 bucks a month, My ID Care can even help if you're already a victim. 
learn more, and then let My ID Care take care of you. MyIDCare.com slash Mark, promo code Mark, and you'll get 15% off. One more time. MyIDCare.com slash Mark, enter promo code Mark, get 15% off. Government can't protect you. You need to protect yourself, and here we have a company that will do that, the best. You know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, our farmers are the most productive on the face of the earth. About 1% of our population actually farms. And our farmers not only feed the American people, they feed much of the world. They feed much of the world. And when left alone, when left alone, they're among the most productive citizens on the face of the earth. And some of them are hurting now. People need to understand what tariffs are. And I'm watching the president's tweets, and it's obvious that he doesn't have advisors who are shooting straight with him. Or he is ideologically committed to something that is economically wrong. Now, see, I will discuss this without attacking him, sabotaging him, but it needs to be on the table. And I think I've discussed this with you at length like five times. And these things are starting to happen now. You have farmers who are really starting to hurt, in the Midwest in particular. The vast majority of Americans don't farm. The vast majority of Americans have never farmed. The vast majority of Americans don't have parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents who have farmed. You go to the supermarket or the grocery store or the Wawa or the Cumberland or the 7-Eleven and you just expect stuff to be there. Sliced bread ought to be there. Corn ought to be there. On and on and on and on. Well, it doesn't just show up. Somebody has to grow it. Somebody has to harvest it. Somebody has to package it. Somebody has to transport it. And on and on. And most of us don't do any of that. We just walk in the store and we expect it to be there. In 50 different flavors and sizes and prices. It's an amazing thing. The world has never seen anything like it. And then the government steps in. And I don't care who's running the damn government. There's a difference between country and government. There's a difference between the civil society and government. The framers of our Constitution understood it, which is why they tried to develop the kind of government that would not devour the civil society or the individual. Now, A tariff is a tax on the American people. A 25% tariff on steel is a 25% increase in the price of steel to the American people that comes into this country. Moreover, domestic steel producers increase their prices too. Why? Because they can. Because now the government has stepped in to quote-unquote protect them. And when the government steps in to quote-unquote protect them, the government is stepping in to quote-unquote screw you. The price of washing machines have gone up 9% in the last three months. President's talking about a 25% tariff on automobiles. You guys at the UAW, you better get ready for this. That means a 25% tax, like a sales tax or a federal sales tax or a federal VAT tax on consumers. You know what consumers do when that happens? They buy used cars or they hold on to their cars. They don't buy new cars. They don't buy new dishwashers. Washing machines, dryers, steel, 
aluminum, rubber. Now, these tariffs or these taxes on the American citizen, on the American consumer, on the middle class of America, it's only a matter of time till there's consequences. It takes a little while. It's a massive economy. It's a complex economy. There's 320 million of us doing all kinds of things every day, producing, buying, serving, consuming, and so forth. But in time, the laws of economics beat the laws of politics. And then I am told that this is a negotiating tactic. This is four levels of chess. Well, then Herbert Hoover was a genius. Because he thought it was a negotiating tactic, too. And four levels of chess, I guess. This is all predictable. These people who run these other countries in Europe and Canada and Mexico, and so they're elected, too. They're not just going to bend over and say, okay, whatever you want. They don't do that. There is complete illiteracy and ignorance when it comes to this. I blame our school system. I blame our colleges and universities. I blame our media. And I blame the modern-day conservative movement. People don't have the guts to stand up to this. This is an attack on capitalism. I'm sorry, it's an attack on capitalism. It's an attack on commerce. We have a commerce clause in the Constitution. A commerce clause. Not a federal income tax clause, but we have a tariff clause too. Right, to raise income to run the federal government. Not to control prices and services and wages. Their framers would be repulsed by that. This isn't a theoretical debate. It's reality. This isn't about being a purist. It's about being rational. The way this should have been handled, in my view, is the administration pulled together our allies. Or those allies who wish to be pulled together, the Europeans, the Canadians, yes, the Mexicans, and others. And focus on our true enemy, The enemy that is stealing our technology. That's not trade. That's not commerce. That's not capitalism. That's theft. And that's China. Stealing us blind to build up their military. Stealing our technology to prop up that communist, murderous, genocidal regime. And they have every intention of replacing us as the greatest superpower on the face of the earth. It is an economic and national security Top priority to deal with China. Russia's on the second tier. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. But all the talk about Russia, as I've said over and over and over again, China's number one. For God's sakes, they have one and a half billion people. I don't even know if Russia has 200 million at this point. And the Russian economy is the size of the Texas economy. China's economy is number two now. It's a fourth the size of ours, but they're gaining fast. You're going to punish Americans, and that will bring other countries to the table? I've never understood this. Well, that way they can't get their goods into our country. No. Fine. But you're hurting the American people. 
people are going to be out of work. If the president of the United States, who I want to succeed, I fight his saboteurs on this microphone, on TV, every damn day. But is he going to self-sabotage? If he puts a 25% tariff on car imports in this country, you watch what happens to our assembly lines. Automobile for the final product, tires, parts. It'll be devastating to the forgotten men and women of this country. Devastating. You don't build up our industries by taxing the American people. You build up our industries by unleashing the American people. If we were to get rid of the vast majority of our tariffs and our subsidies, and there are thousands of them that these politicians stick in the legislation, the sugar lobby, the sugar lobby owns three-fourths of the politicians in Florida, including this guy Putman. The mushroom lobby. And they go on and on and on, all kinds of lobby. The steel lobby, the this lobby, the that lobby. And you're sitting there saying, we must have our steel industry. We, must. we will. It's not patriotic to reject capitalism and commerce. It's not patriotic to have this federal sales tax put on the backs of the American people. If our economy is growing at 4 4.5%, imagine it'd be growing at 6 or 7%. Now, what would happen if we dropped most of our tariffs? What would happen? Money would flood into this country from overseas. People would be building plants in this country. Our banks would be bursting with cash. Money's like water. Money's like water. It finds the opportunities. It finds the gaps. If our tax rates are low, our regulations are low, and our tariffs are low or non-existent, where do you think the money's going to come in from overseas? It's going to come here. So they'll build more foreign plants in this country. Put more Americans to work. American companies overseas will bring more money and employment into this country. You create the environment for liberty. You create the environment for capitalism. If you're going to act like Bernie Sanders, you're going to get the Bernie Sanders result. If tariffs work, then why not put tariffs on everything? Why just steal and aluminum? Put it on everything. And why just 25%, 50%? You see, the schizophrenic argument of the protectionists is this. No, 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 we want to do this to get a better deal. You want to do what to get a better deal? Raise taxes on the American people? And then they tell us this is necessary to build our industries. Well, which is it? Is it a temporary tariff to do a, a better negotiation? Or do we need tariffs to protect American industries? Which is it? And why are certain industries protected and not others? Why are certain jobs protected and not others? And then we've gone to the next logical step as we go down this road, rejecting capitalism. Subsidies. AP, the government announced a $12 billion plan today to assist farmers who've been hurt by President Trump's trade disputes with China and other trading partners. 
The Agriculture Department said the proposal would include direct assistance for farmers, purchases of excess crops. It's called welfare. This doesn't make America great again. It makes the federal government great again. president says this is a short-term solution. How does he know? His intentions are irrelevant. Our economy and the world economy is too big for a president to control. How does he know it's temporary? And so they want to help farmers who grow corn and wheat and cotton and dairy farmers and farmers raising hogs. $12 billion, not even the tip of the iceberg. $12 billion, the federal government blows that every week or two. That's not going to make things even, Stephen. The government gets more powerful. The government gets richer. Tariffs are taxes. They go into the Treasury. Now they're going to take $12 billion and give it out to farmers. Based on what? How are they going to do that? More and more government involved in more and more areas of our economy. Listen to this idiot, Peter Navarra, and the other idiot. Wilbur Ross over at the Commerce Department. Two jokes, in my opinion. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. The Obama test, baby. You know damn well if Obama was doing this, you'd be jumping up and down. And so would I. You have to look into your heart and soul and use your head and make these decisions. It's not a matter of whose political team you're on. It's a matter of what's right. Now, tariffs increase inflation. Tariffs increase the price of goods. Tariffs, while they may protect a particular industry, destroy jobs and other related industries. Are you a capitalist? I mean, we make fun of these democratic socialists, this 28-year-old who got elected, Bernie Sanders. They support all this. Now, why do they support it? Other than they're crazy loons. Why do they support it? Because they're leftists. And we should be helping our president with this. If he's only going to hear cheerleading from the pom-pom boys and girls and the Rockettes, he's going to do more of this. It's not putting America first. Not in the least. Ask the farmers. They feel like they're putting America first. All they're doing is trying to grow food. No, it's not America first. America First is all about liberty and private property rights and capitalism. When is the last time you had your blood pressure checked? Did you know that good blood pressure is one of the keys to heart health and overall well-being? Now, the good news is that consuming beets, you heard me, beets, a simple lifestyle change, can help support healthy blood pressure levels. And drinking super beets is the best way to get the right amount to make a difference. I'm quite serious about this. Key fact, Super Beats works with the body's own natural systems to provide a nutrient that helps support healthy blood pressure. One teaspoon of Super Beats, the recommended daily serving, is verified to provide the nitric oxide equivalent of three whole beets, 
which helps support healthy blood pressure levels. Only Super Beets is made from beets grown to exacting standards, then concentrated in the superfood crystals. Human end products are used by more than 1,400 doctors as an integral part of their daily practice, by top collegiate and professional sports programs around the country, got that? And by leading sports dietitians and experts. So if you want a heart-healthy energy, improved mental focus, and support for a healthy cardiovascular system, here's what I want you to do. Call 866-205-4907. Not an easy number, so please jot it down. 866-205-4907. Or go to superbeats.com backslash Levin. Superbeats.com backslash L-E-V-I-N to find out how to get a free 30-day supply, indicator testing strips to show how it's working, and free shipping with your first purchase. Jump in right now. Seriously. Call 866-205-4907 or go to superbeats.com backslash Levin today. This really isn't a matter of whether you support Trump or oppose Trump. This is a matter of whether you understand commerce, trade, economics, private property rights, entrepreneurship, growth, profit, job creation. That's what it is. I don't know how many more times this country has to go through recessions and depressions to learn this lesson. I hope not again. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. All right, I did a throwdown. Let's get going. Let's hear from the protectionist crowd, the anti-capitalist crowd. Chris, Fairfax, Virginia, the great WMAL. Go. Hi, Mark. Huge fan. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Chris. By the way, what do you do for a living? I'm just curious. Uh, I'm actually a student. This summer I have an internship at a government contractor. But uh, All right. So, And what are you majoring in? Computer science. Okay, so you're not planning on actually working on an assembly line or growing crops or anything like that. That's okay. I don't either. All right, uh, go ahead, Chris. Well, I just wanted to point out that this Sunday, uh, the Washington Times reported that the EU rejected a zero-tariff deal from the United States, but they made a zero-tariff deal with Japan. So ostensibly they're... Well, how, let me ask you, how would we do a zero-tariff deal when many of our statutes require us to have tariffs because they were pushed into bills by members of Congress? How would we do that exactly? Well, we'd have to put more bills through Congress to get rid of those statutes. So let's look at the sugar subsidy that Marco Rubio supports and the vast majority of the uh, congressional delegation in Florida supports. So when you say uh, we offered a zero-tariff to this country— how can we even offer a zero tariff? I'm not even understanding. Don't we have statutes in place? All I'm saying is... What, what do we have, a dictator? No, but we have... Uh, so what we ought to do is propose legislation 
expose the phonies in Congress for whom they are to, uh, you can do zero tariffs with countries, do zero tariffs on products, go ahead. Who's stopping the administration from doing it? Uh, well, see, we have three branches of government in this country, right? President Ke- You see, theoretically, what the president's doing with these tariffs is he's using the national security clause to do it. It has nothing to do with national security when we're dealing with Canada. What's the national security issue? Well, when, uh, I mean, we're getting a little off track here, but when... I'm not off track at all. I'm focused like a laser, buddy. You're a student. I'm educating you. Go ahead. Well, the argument for the, using the national security um, exception was that we need to have our steel industry to have a, have a certain... Well, 70% capacity. of the steel produced in this country is produced domestically. Is that a problem? No. Do, do you know the facts? Yes. Okay, so if that's not a problem, why are we using the national security exception? The argument, well, clearly he's... I'm asking you, okay, not what you were taught. I'm asking you. What's the problem? Clearly it's just uh, an excuse to, for Trump to be able to unilaterally impose tariffs. I'm not going to argue against and, that. And, and here's the problem. It's like the minimum wage. You don't support a $15 minimum wage imposed by the federal government, do you? Of course not. Well, why? Because it's it should be a free market. How could... No, but it, it'll help certain people, right? But it'll also put a lot of people out of work, right? Because some of these businesses, big and small, can't afford it. They can't make their bottom line. Everybody thinks businesses are doubling and tripling their money. They're not. Some are on small margins, 2, 3, 5, 8%. That's why you're seeing more and more kiosks show up in these McDonald's franchises. And then the other fast food companies are going to come up with it. And so all these young people, particularly in the inner cities where these are their first jobs, they're not going to get those first jobs. Hey, I don't support a $15 minimum I know, but I'm not just talking to you. I'm explaining when you're imposing these taxes, imposing these costs, they have consequences. So if you're a senior person at a McDonald's and maybe you've got tenure and maybe whatever the deal is, maybe you'll be there, but a whole bunch of people won't. It's the same thing. When you protect one industry and it has all these, these sub-industries connected to it that rely on those materials or, or uh, technologies or whatever, downstream, as we like to call it, from an economic perspective, it has an impact. Uh-huh. So while people working for XYZ Steel Company People investing in it, people owning it, may be doing great. People having to actually use the steel to manufacture stuff aren't doing as great. Well, I don't. I'm not arguing for tariffs in favor of protecting the steel. So, what do you? I'm what do you? What is your? What is your hypothesis here? I'm not following you. My hypothesis is that the tariffs are a part of a strategy to exert pressure on. Other countries I have a better idea. Trading. The strategy to exert pressure should be to get rid of tariffs and then watch How, the money flow out of their economy. What The way I just said, you go to Congress and you ask them for legislation. Uh, yeah, I know. I understand. And then you encourage these these the Look, we're not trading with countries. You understand that? We're not trading with governments. We're trading with people and businesses. That's if right. you create an environment in the United States like used to exist in Hong Kong, a tiny speck of an island, had no natural resources, but the highest standard of living. Why? Because they had the lowest taxes, lowest regulations, lowest tariffs. 
we can do the same thing. And then all this money will be pouring into the United States from these other countries. All right. Thanks for your call, sir. Appreciate it. Jed, Denver, Colorado, Sirius Satellite. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm great, Mark. Love your show. Um, I'm a farmer in southern Colorado, and things just don't quite make sense when they... I Everybody's talking about, oh, the poor farmers, the poor farmers. Well, from my vantage point, the reason they're poor farmers is because they keep subsidizing us. And I'm probably the first farmer to say, hey, I don't want these subsidies. Let's let free markets work. But you're right. But this creates a very bad mentality. These subsidies. It creates a very bad... Like, for instance, here I'm going to get in trouble again. I don't support ethanol. I don't support it, which means they're going to be angry with me in Iowa and Kansas. I don't care. I don't support it. You grow food to eat. And we got plenty of natural gas and plenty of oil. We don't need it. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I'm... I know I'm a, I'm a farmer, but, you know, I think I'm a conservative first. So I'm able to wade through all of these guys throwing out lifelines to, lifelines to farmers. I mean, one of the reasons why the, ag, the Department of Ag, I mean, the, the farm bill, food stamps, that's to help people eat. Well, they subsidize us so that there's cheap food. And as long as farmers recognize that, hey, they're going to subsidize you, you're going to get a cheap price for your whatever you sell. Well, I agree. I don't want to take on everything right now. I want to stay focused on the tariff issue and the, and the, uh, and the subsidy that the president is proposing. I do understand your point, very, very uh, important point that you're making. But, but when we're, going to over, we're going to overwhelm people. But, but when, he's, when they're throwing lifelines... But, but, but I love this line that this is temporary. He does, how does the president know it's temporary? First of all, things are temporary. Things aren't temporary. It's hard to know. But unless these countries are going to capitulate, and I don't even know what that means in the, in the context of what we're talking about here, uh, I guess he's not going to. But meanwhile, there's dislocation. I'll give you another example, if I may, Jed. Let's say I have a contract, <clears throat> and I'm going to buy a certain amount of uh, whatever it is, steel for a certain price, right? And I have this contract in place for six months. And all of a sudden, tariffs are put in place. And I say, wait a minute. I need more steel, and we agreed to a certain price. What happens then? I have a better one for you. United States military. They just passed an increase in the military spending, right, Jed? Right. There's some prediction, some green eye shade guys at the Pentagon have to figure out how many bombers we need, how many bombs, how many jets, how many missiles, how many, how many tanks, uh, how many uh, personnel carried on and on and on. And they do all these figures. They figure it out. Now the price of steel just went up. I guess we're going to have less tanks and bombers, aren't we? Well, I have to deal that with that with labor. You know, I I try and raise a be efficient in the in raising. The, being cost-effective and how I raise my crops, and then all of a sudden the price of my wages goes up, and then all of a sudden my cost changes. I can't. Let me agree. tell you what else is going to go up: the price of your equipment. Exactly. It's all going to go up. And it, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It's just inflation, higher, higher, higher. But 
And it protects only certain industries. So, of course, and you're going to see it. Wow, look at that industry's doing better and they've got more jobs and they're set. But what you're not going to see is the downstream industries that are doing worse, that are struggling, uh, and people losing their jobs or losing a bonus or losing a salary increase. Thank you for your call, Jed. Let's go to Mark, San Jose, California, the great KSFO. Go. Hello, Mark. This is Mark Medioni. How you doing? Everybody doesn't have to give their last name because, uh, not you, sir, but somebody may not actually be who they say. So let's stick to first oh. names. Go right ahead. All right. Very good. No, I, I, I'm a what, what do you do, by the way? I'm just curious. Engineering. All right. For what? Uh, for a defense you, contractor. Okay. Defense contractor. Yeah. And uh, I'm a conservative, but I'm also a fair trade and a free market person. Well, that's think- not conservative. That's actually leftist. All right. Hey, look, I'm a conservative, but I went fair trade and the government has to do this. How can that be conservative? I think the tariffs are a good thing because I think it needs to factor in the cost of social programs for the people that are out of work because all the jobs are going somewhere else. So we ought to have more tariffs then. Yeah, I think until I think that it's a win win. If China, uh, if we stop. It's a win win. You're obviously not a farmer, are you? I'm talking about the China 900 billion. I'm talking about Americans. I'm talking about the 900 billion. If they so the win-win, it's not 900 billion. It's never been 900 billion. It's been in the 600 billion category. And what does that mean when we have a trade deficit with China? What does that mean? They're buying. Let's walk through this like an SAT test. What does that mean? They're buying more products than uh, we're buying from them than they are from us. So. So if the price goes up in the U.S., so if, the, if there's a trade barrier, then there's the products are going to come from the U.S. sources instead of from the foreign sources. And no, they're not. If, if, you write, if you put taxes on American products, people are going to buy less. What are you talking about? You, you think it's dollar for dollar. All of a sudden, uh, uh, Joe Q. Public says, you know what? Uh, I could have bought that. Could be China, but we're not just putting tariffs on China. Could be Canada. Could be the Europeans. It could be Mexico. We have tariffs going everywhere. Oh, no, no, no. You see, you see, Mark. You say, you know what? That bicycle there that you could get for one hundred and fifty bucks. Now you can just buy it in America for three hundred bucks. Well, I don't want to buy it for three hundred bucks. I guess I see it different. So if if the if it's not a matter of seeing it differently. This is how people behave. It's history. It's fact. Well, I think if China decides to buy the $600 billion from... Why are you focused on China? I notice you won't talk about Canada. Uh, No, because the biggest trade deficit is with China, because we send so much... We buy so much from them. And what are we buying from them? And they should buy back from us. No, they shouldn't. Who cares what they buy? Why do I care what they buy? Why do I care if they tax their people with tariffs? Why do I care if they limit what their people can buy? It's a big world out there. I can sell it anywhere I want to. They don't want it. Somebody else will buy it. But what is it that we buy from China that's so amazing that gives us a $600 billion, as you say, trade deficit? What is a trade deficit, sir? Well, I guess product comes here and cash goes there. Okay. So is that government to government or is that person to person and business to business? It's business to business. Okay, so let's pretend, let's follow you, that we have to have a balance of trade. So which business should stop buying from China? 
Well, if we could get a balance of trade, there'd be a lot Answer more Answer me. Selling, huh? I didn't ask you about if we can get a balance of trade. I want to get to a balance of trade. Which yeah. business should stop buying stuff from China? Well, it's business to business. It's not country to country. There's right. not an imbalance of trade from country to country. There's an imbalance of debt or credit from business to business, as I've used this example before. Let's say I run a company and I need a lot of oil, and I can buy oil from Saudi Arabia cheaper than anywhere else, just as a, as a weird example. And my company buys a billion dollars worth of oil from Saudi Arabia, but I buy nothing from Saudi Arabia. There's a billion-dollar imbalance. So what? I'm taking that billion dollars in oil. I'm running my assembly line. I'm creating good, hardworking, middle-class, blue-collar American jobs. Who gives a damn if there's a billion dollars in trade deficit? It doesn't even matter. It doesn't make sense. Do you follow me? Okay, so th- all right. What it's not the like the co- Chinese the- are shipping us great cars. We don't even buy Chinese cars. It's not like the Chinese are shipping us great computers. We don't even buy Chinese computers. American companies go to China in order to manufacture things because the environment in our country is difficult, they say, they claim. And our answer is, you know what? We'll raise taxes. Well, maybe they should buy some of our cars. They don't want – who is they? The Chinese government? The people. The Chinese people don't earn anything close to what we earn. Well, part of it is the price. Well, maybe we should make you the head of the uh, the American economy, and you can make all these decisions at the White House, too. Thank you for your call. You see where I'm going, folks? Maybe they should do this. Maybe they should do that. In the real world, where people are running businesses, they have to make decisions. They have to meet the bottom line. Do you think Harley-Davidson only wants to expand in Europe and not in the United States? To what benefit is there other than so they can survive? Do you think Whirlpool wants to increase the price of its products by 9% in the last three months? What benefit is there to do that other than to survive? And who the hell sits around as a businessman says, you know what, I'm not buying from this country because of the trade imbalance. The trade imbalance is irrelevant. When China gets tens of billions of dollars of American dollars, they have to spend it someday, some way. But forget about China. I'm talking about our allies. China's a national security exception to me. They're our enemy. Canada's not our enemy. Hell, they got more, what, caribou up in Canada than they have human beings. They're a great threat to us, huh? I don't think so. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Countries don't trade. People trade. Number two, governments don't trade. People trade. So when somebody says, we have a such and so trade deficit with such and such, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense. If I need raw materials, I can give you a thousand examples. If I need raw materials from country A in order to make things here in the United States, and I give them money and they give me the raw materials, but I don't buy any, but they don't buy anything from me. So what? When you go on the Internet and you buy something that's overseas, 
and it's shipped to the United States, and you, and uh, and they don't buy anything from you. Do you realize you're contributing to the the imbalance of trade in the country? That's how irrational this is. I know, I know, I'm uh, pissing against the wind here, as they say, but I'm going to keep doing it until people understand how economics work. China is a national security issue. I am not defending China. I wish people would stop bringing up China, but they won't bring up Canada as an example. I'll be right back. The Mark Levin Show is tomorrow's morning show. You can reach Mark now at 877-381-3811. I've got farmers lined up on my call board here who are suffering from tariffs. If we put 25% tariff, a tax, on cars uh, in this country, uh, we will have members of the UAW who work on assembly lines and those who work on parts, subcontractors, be lined up calling me too. This isn't a theoretical debate. This is reality. We know what happens. Some people benefit when government steps in. More people don't. That's a fact. It's a fact when you talk about raising the minimum wage. Government intervention again. It is a fact when you raise income taxes. Is it a fact when you raise the number of regulations? It is a fact when you put a tax on goods that the American people purchase and call it a tariff. It's one of the reasons we have fought the value-added tax, which is a federal sales tax, which would drive up the cost of things. If you're honest with yourselves, you understand what I'm talking about. You do not go into the grocery store looking to pay higher prices. When you go look for a car, you try and negotiate a lower price. When you buy a dishwasher, a washing machine, a dryer, you look for the best deals. You look online, you look at retail stores. There's a reason why states have a day or two of no sales taxes. There's a reason why President Trump cut taxes. These are incentives. You raise taxes, you create disincentives. The purpose of a tariff is not to punish another country. It is to change the behavior of the American people. So they'll buy less of X and maybe more of Y. But what typically happens is they buy less of X and they buy less of Y. And at the same time, the prices keep going up. The whole notion of supply and demand is distorted. If you're doing this to a country like China, which is stealing our technology, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in research and development investments, capital investments, and using it to build up its military and prop up its economy, then I understand it. There's a national security reason for that. World War II, we didn't have free trade with the Third Reich. We didn't have free trade with Italy. We didn't have free trade with Japan. I get that. But that's not Canada. That's not Mexico. That's not Europe. 
well, they put these trade barriers up. When they put trade barriers up, they tax their own people. That's why Europe is poorer than America. Canada's poorer than America. Mexico's poorer than America. If, in fact, tariffs create wealth and jobs and opportunity, then there needs to be more of them on every product, on every service, on every industry. And why stop at 25%? If the golden goose is tariffs. But then when I bring that up, they say, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not really to protect industries. It's to get these other countries to agree to trade deals. Well, which is it? Which is it? You know, it's amazing. To me, we just act unilaterally. And we slash government regs, we slash income taxes, and we slash tariffs. We get a bill in front of Congress to slash them. Money will pour into this country from Europe, from Canada, from Mexico, from all over the world. Because money looks for profit. Money fights taxes. Countries don't trade. Governments don't trade. People trade. Businesses trade. The protectionists of the Bernie Sanders ilk, or the the president's ilk, say, look, there's tariffs in the Constitution. We'll read it. It's to raise revenue for the government, not to control business. There's also the Commerce Clause. The purpose of the Commerce Clause is not as has been bastardized by the Supreme Court to regulate commerce. The purpose of the Commerce Clause was to liberate commerce and trade because the states were beating the hell out of each other and heavily taxing trade from other countries. Just remember the Declaration of Independence and Unalienable Rights. Just remember I hear it's a negotiating tactic. That's what they all say. It's what Hoover said. It's what Franklin Roosevelt said. It's a negotiating tactic. Well, it's more than that. It's a policy. Fair trade we want. I don't want fair trade. I want to get the advantage of anybody I trade with. Buy low, sell high. Isn't that the fair trade? What is fair trade? I don't even know what that means. We have 12,000 tariffs in place. Fair trade. How about we make America the best place on the planet to invest? The businesses will come. The capital will come. The jobs will come. That's why it's been the best place on the face of the earth to invest. But Mark, again, you're not addressing this uh, trade deficit we have with this country and this country and this country. I don't care. It has absolutely no consequence on our economy. If I tell some guy you cannot buy a billion dollars of oil from Saudi Arabia to run your business, your assembly line, the 1,200 people who work for you, because we need balance of trade with Saudi Arabia, and unless you sell them a billion dollars worth of goods rather than just buy a billion dollars worth of uh, oil. Uh, We need a balance of trade, therefore, you're done. Well, then, he's done. It's incoherent. Why don't they buy more of our cars? Because in China, they don't buy American cars because they're too expensive for China. 
Well, how come their wages are less than ours? It's amazing to me. So now we're all globalists. Everybody should have the same wage. Everything should cost the same. There should be an absolute balance of trade. I didn't think we were globalists. I thought we were capitalists. We can't control what other countries do. We certainly can't control them by screwing our farmers. Or our automobile workers. Or the people who build with their hands. Kitchen appliances. Lawnmowers. Farm equipment. Dump trucks. Pickup trucks. You know, hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites. Stacks of resumes. Confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy. And you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-V-I-N. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applicants come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, you, my listeners, can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive website, ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-V-I-N, ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So it's the policies that I endorse that makes America great again. It's the policies that I endorse that creates massive economic growth, new inventions, new jobs, new opportunities. Just think about it. If you take things to their logical extreme, if you take protectionism to its logical extreme, you have economic destitution. If you take trade to its logical extreme, you have bountiful growth. The freest market we've ever had in this country was the Industrial Revolution. We've never seen anything like it. The closest thing was the Reagan Economic Revolution, which was massive. The Industrial Revolution. And man, we made some enormously wealthy, wealthy people, or they made themselves. Rockefeller, Carnegie, Mellon, before them Vanderbilt, after them Ford. By today's standards, Rockefeller would be worth 400 to $500 billion. And Bernie Sanders would be saying, take the money from him. The man who created... The oil pipeline. The man who realized that natural gas had a value. The man who created the engine of the Industrial Revolution. The development of oil fields, the development of natural gas, its transportation, the Industrial Revolution would never have happened. Mellon. A financial genius funded Tesla, funded Edison. 
we would not have electricity coming into our homes. You would not be able to flick a switch and the light goes on and off. You would not have air conditioning and heating and tell any of it. But for these men, none of it. And they're called robber barons. Notice big government types aren't called robber barons. And they'll take you to the same strikes over and over and over again. The same violent strikes over and over and over again. They'll never tell you that the Industrial Revolution created such enormous wealth. The result was the greatest middle class in human history. And all the things that flowed from that. That make our lives better today. Things that we take for granted. I get a little frustrated with all the sob stories and all the whining. I really do. When you look at what this country offers us. And what people will do to get here. It's very frustrating to me. And... This whole thing about populism, which really started on the far left and now has been embraced by some who claim to be conservatives, it's built on this notion of weak Americans. If such and so would just happen, if such and so would just get out of the way, if we just had fair trade, if we just had this, if we just, I, I, I'm astonished by this. I'm astonished by this. That's not the American spirit that I, I know about. What if we just had high tariffs and protectionism and jacked up the prices of our products? We'd have prosperity? That's just ridiculous. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Bear with me. There we are. Would you pay your hard-earned money to join an organization that fought tooth and nail for a government-run health care system? How about an organization that scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors to ensure the passage of Obamacare? Or an organization that stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners? Would you join that organization? Are you a member of that organization? I'm defining the AARP. Join AMAC instead, the conservative alternative. I'm a member of AMAC. AMAC offers an alternative to just about every benefit and discount the AARP offers, but without the left-wing agenda. Become an AMAC member right now at AMAC.us. Wouldn't you rather belong to an organization that fights for your values, like protecting our borders, supporting small business, standing up for your individual rights? AMAC is the way to go. There's a ton of work to be done. AMAC is asking that you help them fight the good fight by becoming a member and enjoy their wonderful discounts and benefits. They are great. But the cause is great, too. Join right now at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. AMAC is better, better for you, and better for America. Again, A-M-A-C dot U-S. I've got callers here from all over the country. North Dakota, Indiana, Michigan. Montana, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, 
opposed to these tariffs. And the more tariffs there are, and the longer they're in place, more and more the country is going to feel it, and more and more the country is going to rise up. And I'm trying to help the president. Let us go to Gavin, Missoula, Montana, on KGVO, our great affiliate. How are you? Very well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Love your show. Um, have learned a hell of a lot uh, from you over recent years in terms of Thank American you. history, etc. Um, I just wanted to say something about the, the tariffs. Uh, I'm a manufacturer. Um, we import, we export, uh, and we produce a product that goes into the farming sector. And there are two things that are going to, well, you know, we've just come out of three to four years where farmers have had grain prices in the tank, um, where, you know, guys who are not efficient producers have been, you know, producing below their cost of production for some time now. Uh, we saw some light at the end of the tunnel early this year, and along comes the threat of tariffs. Uh, and we've seen significant drops in um, prices for grains, both, uh, you know, soybeans, corn and, and, and wheat going through. And what these tariffs are going to do, they're not going to help anybody uh, in the long run uh, and probably not even in the short run. Uh, so I agree with everything you said about uh, earlier on about the tariffs. So you're, you're a manufacturer of farming equipment. We say we want to keep the manufacturing base, and you're going to get hit by this. Yeah, well, I, I'm lucky enough I don't at this point in time uh, rely on anything coming in from China for our inputs. Um, but, you know, just to put things in perspective, uh, we are looking at other, other sources at this point because uh, we're, we're paying some pretty hefty prices for... But the price uh, of steel in the United States has shot up. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it, it, it peaked. It's come off a little bit uh, since. Uh, it's come off about 10% since uh, the tariffs were announced. Um, but... It doesn't matter too much. It's only a quarter of what goes into our final uh, final pricing. You're just saying um, people aren't going to be around to buy it. Yeah, it's it's you know farmers. As I say, the farmers have, have been just hit very very hardly over the last three to four years with literally grain prices below their ankles. And then as we get some light at the end of the tunnel earlier this year, we saw a, a good pickup in both corn. Soybeans and and and, uh, and wheat. Right. So you're and saying it, the tariffs are, are hurting your the uh, farming market, correct? Yes or no? We're near the end of the show. Yeah, and and just to put the the, the yeah. twelve billion in perspective, there's two million farmers roughly in America. It's six thousand dollars a head. If you're a soybean farmer and you have a thousand, yeah, it's going to make no difference whatsoever. I understand. Maybe a handful of people, relatively speaking, but overall it won't matter. That's what concerns me. Now we're going to uh, you know the fan dance. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute the armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and ICE. You guys take care, all of you. Even if you disagree with me, I want to thank you for being here. God bless you. See you tomorrow.